0: Hi, this is Sarani Fernando again, and we're back to talk about some new developments around the COVID vaccines, but we've got a new name. You're now listening to The Vax Files. Same host, same format, just a slightly different name. And this was mainly done to avoid any potential confusion with the COVAX facility, which some of you may remember is the initiative led by the WHO, Gavi and CEPI to fund the vaccines in lower-income countries. And while we respect everything that they do, we also want to maintain our independence from any official organisation. Thanks for listening. So since we left things in February, a lot has happened. Distressing scenes in hospitals in India,
1: overwhelmed by a record surge in coronavirus cases.
0: The highly contagious Delta variant fueling a surge of new cases across the country.
2: So-called breakthrough infections are rising, but that they may be as transmissible as unvaccinated cases.
0: So more than a year and a half, almost two years living in a pandemic, I'm sure it's safe to assume that you're all a little over hearing about the vaccines. We all are. And while so much has happened over the course of this year with the global vaccine rollout, there are still a lot of pretty big questions and unknowns that are standing in the way of all of us getting back to normal life again. So in the next episodes, we'll try and tackle some of the most frequently asked questions and concerns that are popping up as we enter a new phase of this pandemic. We'll dig into the efficacy and safety so far.
2: It's waning down near 50% at about the six-month point.
0: The risk-benefit question in children. Clinical studies de-escalate all the way to infants. Vaccine mandates and policies.
2: They
3: imply that because you've had a vaccine, you're safe, which you're not.
0: The future evolution of the virus and next-generation vaccines.
3: We
4: have in the past constructed evolution-proof
3: vaccines.
0: And where the global distribution stands to get us out of a worrisome pandemic and into a livable endemic.
3: A typical pandemic runs for three to four years is when it has its disruptive effect before it settles into the background.
0: So take a deep breath, tune out of your daily COVID madness, put your trust in some responsible science journalism and tune in to The Vax Files. So in this new episode, we're going to try and get an understanding of how the vaccines have been working over the last year and how the changing landscape, notably the virus's evolution into the Delta variant, has put pressure on the vaccine's effectiveness. Now we're going to get pretty deep into some real world evidence studies, so brace yourself. But first of all, let's just get a quick snapshot on where we stand today with the pandemic and how we got here over the course of the year. As of mid to late October 2021, there have been over 240 million cases and nearly 5 million deaths globally. Around 48% of the globe has received at least one dose of a vaccine, and over 6.8 billion doses of the vaccine have been administered. While we're seeing some rich countries reach 80% of their population fully vaccinated, some lower-income countries, mainly in Africa, are seeing a stark contrast at only 3% of their population vaccinated. The emergence of the Delta variant, first found in India in late 2020, has now become the dominant and most infectious variant we've seen so far, and it's now present in over 160 countries. The Delta variant is posing real challenges for the currently used vaccines that were originally designed to protect against the original Wuhan variant.
1: The virus is always looking to enable itself to be able to continue infecting the host, in this case, the human host.
0: That was Dr. Maria Elena Bottazzi, the Associate Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas.
1: So as we started, of course, putting barriers, whether they were non-pharmaceutical barriers or whether we already, of course, started using vaccination you know, the, the virus wanted to make sure that they start adapting and maybe even looking for ways of evade. So the virus should not be doing anything that interferes with its ability of binding to the receptor, right? But it, it's certainly changing and maybe modifying a little bit its structure to indeed immunivate that neutralizing antibody that we, of course, want to produce when we either use the vaccine or even against the natural infection or even the cellular immune response. So if you notice, that the, the, the surgence of the variants really came quite at the end of 2020, even though the virus has been mutating constantly, but the real variants of concern were really started to be identified right when we started rolling out the vaccines.
4: There's always going to be pressure for more infectiousness, for more contagiousness.
0: That was Professor Andrew Reed from Penn State University, an evolutionary biologist who has studied pathogen evolution and vaccine effectiveness for over 30 years.
4: Even from the get-go, of course, the vaccines weren't perfect, so there were some levels of disease even in vaccinated people. We now know that there is quite a bit of transmission, especially with Delta from some vaccinated people. So that means that we have this phenomenon that we call breakthrough infections, which are really infections that are coming from people who have been vaccinated. But then on top of that, the question is whether some of these variants are causing additional breakthroughs. So some of them seem to be better at getting through vaccinated people and others. And obviously Delta is the master of this.
1: The good news is that right now, still, even though we, of course, are very aware that these variants are of concern and we need to increase the genomic sequencing and surveillance, and of course, increase vaccination, what we're seeing is that there's some really good examples where the vaccines currently are authorized still are very beneficial against these variants of concern.
0: So that brings us to the question of are the current authorized vaccines actually working how we want them to and how exactly are they working and it's really a delicate question that requires a sophisticated response that's free from any sloppy or uneducated cherry picking of the data. So I thought the best person to tackle this monstrous question and all the little nuances without all of the bias has to be a bias statistician. So I brought back Professor Jeffrey Morris from the University of Pennsylvania to help us walk through some of the real world effectiveness data.
2: I think it's really tricky to sort of pin down what is the degree of effectiveness and how has that changed over time.
0: Now, Jeffrey has been knee-deep in the statistical analysis of the literature, observational studies, and bold public claims, and he's been breaking it all down for the public in his own COVID data science blog. And I found this blog extremely solid and insightful. So he's going to walk us through some of the most important findings of published real-world data and will help us put it all into context.
2: I think it's very clear. We're, we're getting a lot of data And the data is showing that the vaccines have strong effectiveness against severe disease and death, but they're still showing effectiveness in preventing infection and also reducing transmission. I think what's caused confusion is maybe some unrealistic expectations that when we saw early data suggesting 95% efficacy versus infection and 99% efficacy versus severe disease. I think there was a thought that the vaccines were going to lead to quick herd immunity, and we weren't going to be seeing vaccinated people become infected, and the few that were, we would not be seeing severe disease. So once we started seeing a large number of vaccinated people getting infected, and we saw people hospitalized, I think this bursts a lot of people's bubble about what they expected from the vaccines.
0: He said a large proportion of the public started to go to the extreme and infer that the vaccines weren't working. But from his read of the initial clinical trial data and just how vaccines work in the real world, nothing is really surprising.
2: There's sort of extreme viewpoints of the vaccines are going to stop all infection on one extreme and on the other extreme, they just don't work. When the reality is, as in most cases, you know, truth is in the middle.
0: So we'll try and break down what some of those middle truths actually look like. But first of all, let's tackle the now well-publicized issue of breakthrough infections.
2: When we started seeing more breakthrough infections that really were first evident in Israel,
0: As we discussed in earlier episodes, Israel had a unique deal with Pfizer to supply the entire country with its vaccine really early in the pandemic. And that was in return for real world data on how its vaccine was working. And now we're starting to see some of the benefits of that deal.
2: And I think from a data interpretation perspective, it was very tricky when we saw that to sort of unravel what is really happening with these breakthrough infections? Is it that the vaccine's effectiveness is waning so that over time it's not working as well? Is it related to the fact that the first people to get vaccinated were those that were oldest and most vulnerable, maybe the immunocompromised or the older people, for whom the vaccines might not work as long, and also for the people who are healthcare workers and other essential workers that will have the highest level of exposure and be tested the most? Or is it because of Delta? that we have this new variant that we know is much more transmissible, 50% more transmissible than alpha, and maybe two and a quarter times more transmissible than the original Wuhan variant. So it's really hard when we see breakthrough infections happening to disentangle all those factors and figure out what is really driving things. The answer, I think, to the question of which of those are driving the breakthrough infections, the answer is all of the above. They're, they're all factors.
0: After reviewing real-world data sets coming from many countries, including the UK, the US, Qatar, and Canada, Jeffrey explained that studies over the last three months have specifically been able to better answer the questions around those breakthrough infections.
2: We've seen studies show that Delta does present unique challenges. It transmits more easily. It seems to reproduce in the body and spread very efficiently within the body and progress quickly. It seems to come with higher viral loads.
0: So we talk about higher viral loads a lot, and that just means how much of the viral particles are circulating in the blood during an infection. And for Delta, it's a key factor as to why it's so much more transmissible.
2: All of those things are very challenging for the vaccine. And so studies have shown vaccines having lower effectiveness versus Delta to some degree than other variants.
0: So the Delta effect does seem to be the new problematic chapter of this pandemic. And later in the series, we'll get a better understanding of how the Delta variant or other future variants might impact the future performance of vaccines. But first, let's understand how the different vaccines that we currently have are performing around nine to 10 months after their first rollout. First up, looking at Pfizer's vaccine, which is the highest administered vaccine globally, and therefore has the most robust data set for us to analyze.
2: A number of studies have clearly shown that the vaccine effectiveness versus infection does wane for the Pfizer vaccine at five to six months. We now see a number of solid studies that have all found very similar results. One of them was a population-wide study in Israel and then there was one that just came out from the Kaiser Permanente health system out on the West Coast.
0: So, this managed healthcare system in the US followed 5 million people that took the Pfizer vaccine, and they were able to track infections and how immune protection waned over time. The results seem to validate findings in Israel and other real world settings.
2: Versus infection, the effectiveness appears to be somewhere around maybe 80 to 85 percent or even a little more when people are recently vaccinated. But after five or six months, that drops off down near 50 percent versus infection. And this has been validated a number of places. It seems quite solid. But I think it's important to remember that context, that the studies adjusted for some of these confounding factors have shown that there is indeed waning. But it's not that the effectiveness is waning to zero. It's that it's waning down near 50 percent at about the six month point. So there's still considerable protection against infection.
0: So I spoke with Dr Nikolai Petrovsky again from Flinders University, who we heard a lot from in episodes earlier this year.
3: So certainly the slightly lower effectiveness of the existing vaccines against Delta, you know, is predictable from the immunology. The uh, levels of neutralising antibody that you see in subjects getting the vaccines is lower to Delta than it was to Wuhan. Not dramatically, but, you know, two to three-fold lower. And what that means is that even if you get protection against Delta early after receiving these vaccines, it's going to wear off quicker than your protection against, say, Wuhan, which, of course, is no longer pretty well in existence. It's been completely pushed out by Delta. So the vaccines are still effective against Delta, just they're starting at a lower a lower level, and and they're wearing off faster.
0: So most of our waning conclusions are coming from Pfizer's vaccines simply because of the available data. But what about the other vaccines? Is it much of a muchness, or are there subtle differences between them?
3: Look, I, I think the waning immunity is certainly common to multiple platforms, not just the mRNA. It's been reported with the astrazeneca adenovirus vector platform it was also seen in the united arab emirates when they did the trial of the Sinopharm, you know chinese inactivated vaccine and and in fact you know it was even last year they were giving third doses to everyone and i presume i mean that was driven by one you know they were disappointed at the efficacy after two doses But I think it also was a rapid realization if you start low and it declines rapidly, you know, within a few months you lose the protection. So so I think it is a general phenomena of all of the platforms that have been rolled out so far.
2: There was a couple studies, at least two or three, that looked at the Moderna relative to the Pfizer and it suggested a bit less waning
0: If you remember, Moderna's vaccine is triple the dose of Pfizer's vaccine and it's also given four weeks apart as opposed to Pfizer's three. And some immunologists are trying to understand whether these factors could lead to more durable immune protection.
2: We have to be a little bit cautious about interpreting that to not just assume that we're not going to see the same waning effectiveness versus infection in Moderna just because we haven't seen it as much yet. So I think It's plausible that with Moderna, we may see the same waning, but it might be beyond six months.
3: We have to be careful. Moderna and Pfizer have never been put head to head in the same study. So it wouldn't be surprising if Moderna gave somewhat higher initial immunity than Pfizer, because it is the the higher dose. I would fully expect that the immunity and the protection would wane just like Pfizer's is. But if it starts a little bit higher, maybe it will wane, you know, at five months instead of four months.
0: So even though we're dealing with the reality of immune protection waning with our current vaccines, severe disease is clearly what we all care about to get our society and hospitals back to a livable normal.
2: The immunological studies are crucial to really characterise the multimodal components of the immune system. And evident in these factors is that we see waning in protection versus infection, but we don't see as much waning in the protection against severe disease or death from virus.
0: So most people think about antibodies when it comes to immune protection, and if we've got less antibodies, then we've got less protection. But let's not forget that our immune system is a little bit more sophisticated than that, and we've got things like memory B cells and T cells that should also help us
2: fight the virus. If we think about how our immune system reacts, and how the vaccines work, the vaccines don't act as a shield that prevents the virus from entering our system. Whether we're vaccinated or not, if we are exposed to the virus and we breathe in some of the particles, some of the viral particles go in our respiratory tract and they're going to bind to our cells, they're gonna start replicating. So the benefit of our immune system is that it's going to try and produce a neutralizing response as quickly as possible.
0: So these vaccines, when first administered, produce extremely high levels of antibodies, like tenfold higher than what is produced with a natural infection. When there's so many antibodies in our system, many of which are neutralising antibodies, meaning it can specifically target that spike we're always talking about, the virus can be neutralised in a way that we might never even know we were infected without any symptoms, or maybe no trace of the virus in a PCR test. In other cases, the antibodies may not be quick enough to prevent symptoms alone, but might be able to nip the virus's spread before it starts to cause more severe disease.
2: After four, five, six months, we can see that those astronomically high levels of neutralizing antibodies come down. They come down tenfold. They don't go to zero. Most people still have neutralizing antibodies evident, but not nearly at the same volume. But one thing that we see from immunology studies are that the B cells, which are the memory cells that are produced that can regenerate antibodies in the future, those do not decline by six months.
0: Okay, so let's just backtrack. We've got memory B cells that can produce more antibodies if we need them, and we've also got T cell responses that can also help fight against the virus. Now, this response might not be as quick, and that extra time might be enough to enable an infection that might not have shown up if there were higher levels of neutralizing antibodies circulating around. So I like to use the analogy of the virus being the body's own criminal invasion where the antibodies are sort of like the local frontline police force and the memory B cells and T cells are more like the National Guard and Army backup. So it's really just a matter of how strong that frontline antibody defense force is to just strike any viral destruction from the get-go. And if that viral attack is just too powerful for our body's own police force, our antibodies, that's where we might see some symptoms, and it's just about how quickly the body can communicate to get its stronger defenses, the B-cells and the T-cells, out to the COVID battlefield. And I guess adding to that analogy, we could say that people who are older or have comorbidities just don't have as strong of a defence, so they need a little bit more help with boosters. So what's the data saying about the vaccine's effectiveness against severe disease?
2: In the Kaiser Permanente study, they actually showed within five months no decline of vaccine effectiveness versus severe disease. It remained at around 93%, whether you were vaccinated five months ago or whether you were vaccinated last month. We did see the paper in Israel that looked at waning immunity over time since vaccination did show a reduction for protection versus severe disease as well. But the reduction went from 97 to 93% in the younger cohort and from 91 to 86% in the older cohort. So even with the waning effectiveness, the vaccines were still showing very strong protection against severe disease. And of course, that's very clinically important, especially once we we get into a variant like Delta that transmits so aggressively. I'm not sure we're going to see herd immunity-based eradication where we don't see the virus. I think it's going to be in our communities long term. So if we can get it manageable to the point where it doesn't threaten people's lives and severe disease is rare, then it becomes a more manageable routine virus. And I think that's the realistic end game.
0: So I myself was curious as to whether there was any possibility that newer variants could be linked to more severe disease.
4: So attributing disease severity to a particular variant is quite challenging because so many other things beyond the variant itself cause disease severity you know, comorbidities, how old the person is, whether they had the vaccine and so forth. And I I think even for Delta, the data is still a bit ambiguous as to whether Delta causes more severe disease. Perhaps the evidence is better that Alpha causes more severe disease, but it's still very challenging to do it in a human disease to figure out the disease severity. That's why I've been spent my career working on animal models of disease, because we can take different variants and stick them in exactly the same type of host and see directly measure and compare the disease severity that the different strains cause. We can't do that in humans, obviously.
0: He mentioned that if there ended up being any positive relationship between transmissibility and disease severity, then that would be quite a bleak outlook for the future, as then we'd end up with variants that have higher case fatality rates that would particularly show up in the unvaccinated compared to current variants. Right now, that correlation doesn't seem to be evident, but it's something experts like Dr. Reed are watching carefully.
3: I think that, you know, we're fortunate that the current vaccines definitely do work against Delta. And as you say, particularly at the level of serious disease and hospitalisation and death, they're only maybe 10% to 20% lower effectiveness against Delta as they were against Wuhan. But obviously, it does open up a bit more of a gap. You know, we should be looking at ways to to address that going forward.
0: So we know that breakthrough infections are happening, which means more cases, but severe disease and deaths are being lowered and that all seems like a good sign for the future. But what about that tricky question of being vaccinated and still having to worry about passing the virus on to others? I asked Jeffrey to explain the current evidence around transmission of infection amongst vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations.
2: There's a really nice study that came out of the UK recently that looked at their national contact tracing and and so was able to say something more directly about transmission because they can connect infected people with their contacts and see how many of them were infected. And because it's national data, and because they have vaccination status, as well as other potential explanatory and confounding factors, they're really able to look at transmission. And this study showed that both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine seemed to be protective against transmission. The Pfizer was at a stronger level than the AstraZeneca, but both of them were significantly reducing the level of transmission
0: so it's important to recognize that the data isn't showing that the vaccines are 100% effective in preventing transmission, but there are several data points showing that a person is less likely to transmit after vaccination. He said there's about an 80% reduction after Pfizer's vaccine and around a 60% reduction after AstraZeneca's vaccine. The data also looked at effectiveness waning and he said that the transmission is less likely in people recently vaccinated versus those that were vaccinated a long time ago. But Even in the Pfizer data, there was still a 15 to 20 percent reduction in the transmission rate six months after vaccination.
2: So it seems like the breakthrough infections do still seem less likely to transmit. But again, I think it's a case of expectations versus reality and people's disappointment because I think the initial thought was that vaccines would prevent transmission.
0: Jeffrey mentioned a particular nuance about transmission realities both pre- and post-Delta. In the original breakthrough infections, for example, those caused by the Alpha variant, the one after the original Wuhan variant, the viral loads were much lower in the vaccinated population versus the unvaccinated. Therefore, those inferences were made that the virus would be less likely to transmit after vaccination. However, when Delta came along... Delta comes at a much, much higher viral load. And Jeffrey said that there were a couple of data sets that showed viral loads seen in the COVID tests of breakthrough infections were just as high as they were in the unvaccinated.
2: This result, I think, shook people a bit because it made them think, wow, well, if the viral loads are just as high, then that means they transmit just as much. And I think even the CDC interpreted things that way because that was when they... Change their recommendations for mask mandates to include the vaccinated. And I think that they rightfully recognized that, yes, breakthrough infections can transmit as well. But again, I think it was an overcorrection because they were just looking at PCR tests, but they didn't look at the duration. And a couple studies showed that even though the levels were just as high at testing, they seemed to decline much more quickly in the breakthrough infections than they did in unvaccinated infections. Again, perhaps. Indicating the immune system can more rapidly neutralize the infection. The infection may come in at a high level and start, but then gets neutralized more quickly. Well, if it gets neutralized more quickly, it would make sense then that it might transmit less because it's at high levels for a shorter period of time.
0: The other notable point is that a higher proportion of breakthrough infections are asymptomatic. And we've now seen some studies that show that asymptomatic infections seem to transmit as much as five times less than symptomatic.
2: So I think those factors back then convinced me that it was very likely that the vaccines were still protecting against transmission to some degree, maybe not as much as pre-Delta maybe not as much as immediately after vaccination, but that it was still substantial. And I think this UK study sort of showed that.
0: Jeffrey mentioned that a big problem of this pandemic is the fact that too many non-experts are attempting to interpret complicated data themselves and are ultimately doing more damage than good by spreading misleading conclusions. He mentioned that people in the media and influences in social media are taking superficial population data from research or official databases without adjusting them for important confounding factors. And these can include things like age, time, comorbidities, amongst many other things. And without doing that stratification, conclusions are just meaningless noise. And it's important to not get caught up in that as an uninformed observer.
2: So one example was in Israel, In August, people were making statements that more than 60% of severe infections in the country were in the fully vaccinated population. Therefore, the vaccines must not be working. And in that data, you can see simultaneously that it is true that almost 60% of the severe cases are in the fully vaccinated. And at the same time, the vaccine effectiveness versus severe disease in that cohort was 85 to 92% in all the age cohorts. So that seems like a contradiction that both of those things can be true, but they were both true.
0: This goes into a bit of a deeper statistical discussion, and the misleading initial headline essentially didn't account for the much higher proportion of people vaccinated in Israel at the time. And once he accounted for all the different confounding factors that came with that in his analysis, he found that the rate of severe disease in the unvaccinated was three times higher than in the vaccinated. Now, there's a lot more to it, and if you're interested in getting down into the statistics and getting walked through it all by an expert, I strongly recommend that you go to his blog, which I'll link to on my website. But in essence, what he is saying is that when people cherry-pick simplified summary data that hasn't been properly stratified or normalized, they can significantly distort the truth. And this has been happening a lot during the pandemic, with uninformed members of the public trying to interpret complex and multi-layered scientific data. It's turned into a wild world of messiness out there, and I often steer clear of most things on social media. So this is the episode of the current effectiveness of the vaccines, and there's so much more to discuss about future efficacy.
4: Going forward, we hope the world is going to be more and more vaccinated. So the pressure to adapt, to get better at vaccinated people, not just people, but vaccinated people, that's going to grow.
0: As of now, there hasn't been any mutation coming from vaccinated people, and the variants so far have emerged from the virus proliferating in unvaccinated people.
4: We haven't seen any specific vaccine adaptation, but I do think that's probably only a matter of time.
0: There's so much more to unravel on the future efficacy of the vaccines, and that involves the future evolution of the virus, the possibility of leaky vaccines, and how the next generation vaccines are going to be so important for the future. And we're going to discuss all of those issues in a later episode. So that's it for the real-world efficacy episode of The Vax Files. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something new and at the very least have come away with a better understanding of how complicated analyzing this data really is. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Jeffrey Morris, Dr. Maria Botazzi, Dr. Andrew Reid, and Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky for sharing their thoughts and expert insights on this episode. We'll hear more from all of them in future episodes. Next episode, we move on to safety, a topic that is constantly coming up for debate and the main reason for some strong vaccine hesitancy. So stay tuned for the next episode of The Vax Files.